over the uh, the last little while, I've been uh, making some preparation. Um, I've been making some preparations at my place to begin growing uh, some some produce to feed our family from a new veggie patch. So that's how it looked a few weeks ago before Christmas. And I had a, a bobcat come in and scrape it all down and, and give us a nice flat start. I then um, dug out four square metres of hard clay and dropped it down so we could have a good amount of dirt. That, that, that four metres digging by hand wasn't easy. Josh helped me a bit, which was lovely. Um, I then proceeded to dig holes, um, four corner post holes, um, and, and I ended up going too deep, which is really what you want to do when you're digging a hole, isn't it? You always want to dig them too deep. Yeah, no, not good. Um, but anyway, we, we put some, some steel posts in. And Monday, I had the blessing of Russell and Will who came over and helped me put in eight metres of soil and put in the upright posts around my garden bed. So it's ready for vegetables. Isn't that good? But of course, my place backs onto a creek and on this creek there are copious amounts of big gum trees. And you know what love living in those gum trees? Sulphur-crested cockatoos. They come in their hundreds and they squawk and, oh, man, I tell you what, if there's one more annoying bird sound, like, it's horrible, really. That's all they do the whole time. You know, not like these lovely uh, birds that you get in Europe singing these lovely melodies. No, no, we have the, the, the real birds, right? These are like miniature dinosaurs, I reckon, because the noise they make is ungodly. Um, and so, to fix that, Russell and I spent two days this week putting up some netting. So, we're almost finished. Almost ready to plant out some plants. It's all ready to go. Soon, I'm going to have corn growing and soon, uh, maybe some leeks and a whole bunch of other vegetables are coming in. And so, uh, I'm really ready. I'm, I'm so glad, though, that... I've turned what was a hard clay piece of dirt, just growing weeds, into something that's now going to be productive um, and produce wonderful homegrown vegetables for our family. But if I had have just thought, okay, let's just stick on some sleepers and chuck some dirt in, like I've done every other time I've tried to grow things, I would not get the results that I believe I'll get from this sort of a setup because I never got good results in the past. So I reckon that that really good preparation is the key. And I'm not sure if you're aware of the alliteration, um, you know, proper prior planning prevents poor performance. Um, you know, there's, I, I googled that saying, and there's about 15 other P's you can add into it if you're really interested, not all of them suitable for today. Um, but, you know, I, I'm hoping that that saying rings true for my garden, that good preparation will, will, will prevent poor performance. And uh, it, it's one of those things that before you undertake any task, good preparation is really important. Now, I'm not sure about you and what endeavours you're undertaking, but are you putting in the preparation to prevent poor performance? And today we're going to look at chapter 3 of Luke. 
we're going to see the preparation for Jesus' ministry of hope. So if you've got your Bibles, open up with me to chapter 3 of Luke. And uh, we're actually going to continue this series of Luke right through to about chapter uh, 9 or so, around Easter-ish. So we'll be hanging out in Luke for a little while. So, you know, if you want to know what we're doing next week, well, where we finish today, we'll pick up next week. So if you want to read ahead, go for it. You know, always good to read the Bible more. Um, So, so far, we've had the birth of Jesus that was foretold in amazing circumstances. And last week, we saw that Jesus grew as a boy. And now, Luke starts off chapter 3 with some historical information to place us in the right time and place in history for what has occurred and for everything that has happened that he has recorded for us to know is truth. You can go and you can see that what he's written is true by corroborating evidence. That's why he's writing for us. And so, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene. I know I got those um, pronunciations correct, by the way. So, so he starts off giving us this information. And so what we work out from all of this information is that this is probably in the year AD 29, give or take a year. Um, Tiberius became emperor in AD 14, though he may have been in charge of certain provinces prior to that time. Pontius Pilate reigned over Judea from AD 26 to 36. Herod Antipas was Tetrarch, ruling Galilee and Perea, from 4 BC to AD 39, and Herod Philip II was Tetrarch of the Northern Transjordanian Territories, which, for those who are really in the know, are east of the Jordan River and largely north of the Yarmouk River, for just those playing at home. Um, and that area is known as Iturea, Butania, Trachonitis, Oranitis, and Gulenitis. There you go, just all the, all the words there. And he reigned there from 4 BC to 34 AD. Antipas and Philip um, were both sons of Herod the Great and were designated as Herod's heirs on his death when Herod died at the year 4 BC. And that was along with their brother Archelaus. And it's likely that Lysanias, who's mentioned here, ruled a territory near Damascus and that this region was given to Herod Agrippa I around AD 37. So Luke's precision in naming five Roman officials with their specific titles, shows concern for detailed historical accuracy. And his accuracy is confirmed by historical records from outside the Bible. And so Luke gives us the Roman rulers. He then, he gives us the Jewish rulers as well in verse 2. And so, in verse 2, if you look in your Bibles, you'll see that he names the two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. Now Annas, he was the, the, the high priest from AD 6 to AD 15. So he actually wasn't high priest at this time of his writing. Caiaphas was. Um, Caiaphas served as priest from AD 18 to AD 36. But it's a little bit like America, you know, like when the president, once they stop being president in office, they're still called Mr. President for the rest of their life. 
the same sort of thing happened here with the high priest. Once you actually left the office as the practicing high priest and someone else replaced you, you were still considered a high priest. That never really left you, that title, a bit like Mr. President. And so that's a lot of information in just one and a half verses, really, isn't it, that, that Luke's given us. He really wants to, us to understand that what he's writing is rooted in fact. It is true. It is correct. It is reality. It is verifiable. It is a true account of what took place and when everything took place. And so today, two millennia later, we too can have confidence in Luke's account of what occurred. This is what happened. This Jesus that Luke writes about is not an illusion or a made-up story. And so... In around AD, AD 29, with all these specific rulers in place, we read in verse 2 that the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what's interesting to note here is this is the first time that the word of God came to someone in the New Testament. The last time that this happened, that the word of God came to somebody, was to the prophet Malachi. I always say it wrong. I always call him Malachi, the Italian prophet. But his name's Malachi. Um, some 460 years earlier. And yet now, God was speaking through John, a prophet. God was speaking as he had once spoken to the nation of Israel through prophets. And so this signifies something momentous that God was again speaking to his people after 460 years of silence. And what was this prophet's message? It was to repent. See, the gospel always starts with repentance. And so here we see that John is baptizing people, but it's a different baptism to what you or I have undergone or would, go, undergo, uh, would do today. See, with John's baptism, going under the water, it symbolized repentance, a turning from sinful practices, sinful thinking and sinful living, and turning to a life that honors God. So I always think of repentance as sort of a 180 turn. We once were heading this way towards sin. We now repent and we turn to God and to living a way that honors him when once we weren't. And so this prophet who was calling people to repentance was prophesied and we're actually given by Luke what that prophecy was. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet in verse 4, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. And no doubt this had begun to cause a stir. When God speaks after 460 years of silence, people paid attention. Crowds of people began coming out to be baptized. John indeed was preparing the way verse 7 john said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath now in israel there were many different snakes and vipers was a, a general term 
for any number of poisonous snakes in Israel. And, and by calling the people a brood of vipers, what John is saying here is that they had become the seed of the serpent from Genesis. They were the produce of sin. And so John is asking them, as people who had become the product of sin, who had warned them of the coming wrath? And who had warned them that this wrath could be averted by being baptized as an act of repentance? Now, what this demonstrates is that word had traveled fast and crowds of people were recognizing their status before God, that they were sinners in need of a savior and they were being offered the opportunity to repent. And they took it. And John began speaking to them and rebuking them and teaching them and answering their questions as we continue in verse 8. He says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for, for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And so John encourages them to produce fruit. So what he's saying is, now that you have repented of your sins, live your life in a manner that honours your repentance. Don't continue to sin. And he rebukes people who reject the need to repent, who instead stand on their heritage, who say they are a descendant of Abraham, so they're going to be okay. But John says that they'll be cut off and thrown in the fire. And I still see this today. I mean, people regularly tell me, and they probably tell you as well, you know, if the topic of religion or church ever comes up, oh yeah, I'm Catholic, or, you know, oh yeah, 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 you know, and so I ask, okay, so do you go to church? Oh, no, 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 I've, you know, I, I've, I've, not since I was a kid, but, but I'm Catholic, right? So is that your faith? No, no, I'm, I'm Catholic. Mm-hmm. I understand that you identify with yourself as Catholic, but is that your faith? Is that what you believe? No, I'm Catholic. And so I say, and when people say I'm Catholic, I say, yeah, I'm Australian. And they go, what? I'm like, well, I'm Australian because I was born here, right? You're Catholic because you apparently are born into it, but that's not your faith. And so it actually gives you an opportunity by answering them in a really odd way to say, you know what? There is something more to faith than identifying with your heritage. It's a personal journey. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, just like I'm Australian because I was born here, you identify as Catholic because that's what your parents or maybe even your grandparents or even great-grandparents were at one point in time. They were Catholic. That's not your journey. Your journey is a journey that's your own to take. And so, you know, it's an it's a odd way of answering someone who says, I'm Catholic. I say, yeah, and I'm Australian. You know, it's a completely different shift, but it gets us talking and it's really good. So, you know, it, it lets me share the gospel. I say, Unless you have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, then all that word to you is a label, just like I am Australian because I was born here. You aren't born into faith. It's a personal response that we each have to make to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And John rebukes these people for the exact same thing. Just because you're born into the family doesn't mean that you don't need to repent of your sins. You don't become a member of God's family because you are born into it. It's a personal response to God and his call. Verse 10, the people say, well, 
What should we do then? The crowd asked. And John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. And even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And so the response of the people is great. It's, so what should we do? They're asking, they're coming and asking me. I'm, I'm repenting of my sin, so, so what should I do now? And what John says is, change, change. Don't just continue on as you once were. If you have repented of your sin, change. Repent and believe. Bear fruit in your repentance. So as for work, for what you do at work, continue working. Don't, don't stop. But when you're working, employ upright morals and good conduct. Don't continue on as you once were, going along with the flow of all the people around you. If you've repented of your sin, change. And instead of just doing what you once did, extorting people, racketeering, whatever was involved in the profession, whether you're working as a soldier or as a tax collector, be honest. Employ good morals and upright conduct. Verse 15, these people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. John preaches the good news jesus is coming but this good news was different from old testament prophets because john is the first preacher of the good news of the kingdom of god he was not the messiah but he was preparing the way for the one who is and then in verse 21 we read when all the people were being baptized jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. See, the baptism of John that he conducted was a baptism of repentance. So think about that. Jesus got baptized by John. So why did Jesus get baptized into a baptism of repentance if he knew no sin? Jesus never sinned, right? We know that. Why did he need this baptism then? That got me stumped too. It's it's actually a foreshadowing of what occurred at the cross. This is the moment where Jesus starts identifying with our sin. He identified with your sin and my sin and he baptized in repentance of our sin so that when he's at the cross, he can pay the penalty with that sin he's identified personally with. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? That at the start of his ministry, the first day, you could say, he then has the end in mind. 
He knows where he's heading from day one. Jesus submitted to John's baptism of repentance to identify with Israel's sin. As I said, foreshadowing the judgment he will endure at the cross. And when Jesus was baptised, this amazing scene takes place. First of all, heaven is opened. And so these people here see visible evidence of God's action. Imagine standing on the banks of the Jordan River, hearing John speak of the one that is to come, seeing Jesus go down into the waters of baptism and then seeing heaven open. Wouldn't that be an amazing sight? And then next to see the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus. The description given by Luke is of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove onto Jesus. And in so doing, Jesus is anointed and empowered for ministry. And then we hear this voice from heaven speak. God himself speaks. And he doesn't say much. He says just a few words. But what he says means a lot. He says, my beloved son. Jesus was not only man, but he was also the uniquely loved son of the father. He was fully human and fully divine. With you, I am well pleased. God continued. And so God expresses affirmation and delight in all that Jesus is and has done. And that's before Jesus has even embarked on his ministry of hope, which we will start looking into next week. Isn't that amazing? You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Any sons here amongst us would love to hear that from their father themselves? Any daughters here would love to hear that from their father or mother? Isn't that just something that cuts right deep? And imagine hearing that as God's son from the Father in heaven. That would be a pretty buoyant occasion, wouldn't it? Something to celebrate. Something that just gives that deep affirmation. Luke then gives us the genealogy of Jesus. And I'm not massive on genealogies. But have you ever compared Luke's list here with the, Luke, with the list given to us by Matthew? Anyone ever done that? Yeah, I did. They don't match up. They're different. So why is that? Why is Matthew's genealogy of Jesus different to Luke's? Um, scriptures must be not true then, right? Oh, the Bible's not true then. If they differ, that's what people say. But it's not true. Because we know why Luke wrote his gospel, right? Do we know why Matthew wrote his gospel? It's, it's different. Matthew's Gospel, one of the major themes in Matthew's Gospel is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, right? That's a major theme of Matthew. And so he's really focused on this kingdom principle. And so Luke, however, was really concerned with being factually correct. And so he chose to give us the direct, literal line of descent going right back to Adam, whereas Matthew he focused on the royal line of descent going back to King David as the one, because that's one of his major themes in the Gospel of Matthew, is the kingdom of God, which is tied directly to David's throne. And so when people come to you and say, this Bible isn't true, it doesn't line up, you know, there's a whole lot of information behind that, that actually you've got to understand the reason behind the author's writing for us. Why did God give us the, the, the gospel of Luke? Well, because it, it was 
like this is what happened. This is the literal, this is it. God gave us the Gospel of Matthew because there's themes there that Matthew explores for us which Luke hasn't tried to do. And so that's why these genealogies differ. Um, and that was a good ex- discovery this week of mine as I was studying. Oh, what? What? Yeah. So anyway, so that's that. But, but what I want to focus our attention on today was the right and proper place of repentance. Because repentance is the right response to our sin. The gospel always starts with repentance. When we went through Acts last year, time and time again, we saw, we saw Paul sharing the gospel. And he always called for two responses. They were for people to believe and repent. To repent and believe. The gospel always starts with repentance. Because the gospel always meets us where we are. We are sinners in need of a saviour. And that saviour God provided for us in the personal work of Jesus Christ. This same Jesus Christ who identified with humanity's sin as he was baptised by John in a baptism of repentance. And he freely offers us the gift of salvation today for all who believe. But what does repentance do for us? And why is it necessary? If the grace of God covers our sins, and it does, why repent? Well, repentance is first of all a big part of us admitting that we cannot save ourselves, that we need God's intervention to save us from our sins. Repentance is also, it's turning from our sin and turning to God. It's saying, God, I don't want to go where I was heading to death and destruction. Instead, I want to go your way. And it's only as we repent and turn to God does he freely forgive our sin. Repentance brings us forgiveness and forgiveness brings hope. See, forgiveness is an understated aspect of the Christian life. We are forgiven. We no longer have to live with the weight of sin hanging around our necks. We can live in the freedom that comes from being forgiven. We can live in the hope that comes from being forgiven through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And forgiveness has some amazing benefits for us. Because we are forgiven, we can forgive others. One of the things that Christ died on the cross for was to empower us to forgive. Matthew 6, 14 to 15 says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So here Jesus is emphasizing the importance of forgiving others. As he's indicating here that there is a direct relationship between having been forgiven by God and the forgiveness that we as his disciples of necessity must extend to others. When it says here, if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins, you might think, well, hold on, aren't I saved? Doesn't that mean I'm forgiven? And so what this is meaning here, what it's referring to is, is, is the restoration of personal relationship with God, not our initial justification we are once saved always saved yes we will sin again that is our human nature our fallen nature and so what repentance does for us who are saved is it restores right relationship with god 
through his forgiveness of us. To have right relationship with God is to freely forgive others as we have been forgiven. And I truly believe that forgiving other people is part of our repentance. Harboring unforgiveness towards other people for what they've done towards us, for circumstances that have beaten us. To let, forgiveness, uh, to let unforgiveness go unchecked is not healthy for us because it's not healthy for our relationship with God. Because we have been forgiven, because we have experienced God's forgiveness of us, we can forgive others. And it's hard. It is really hard. I was quite deeply hurt by somebody a few years ago and forgiving that person was, I think, one of the hardest things I could could do because so much was wrapped up in what hurt had occurred that the thought of forgiving them, just even to think of possibly even coming to a place where I could forgive them was hard because that hurt me so deeply. But that churned me up for a long time and it was only once I had forgiven this person that I felt free. My unforgiveness didn't hurt them, it hurt me. That sucks. That sucks big time. Because you'd hope that, you know, if someone's done something bad towards you, I'm not going to forgive you out of spite. Sucked in. But who does that hurt? It hurts me. So uh, there is great truth here in the scripture that forgiving other people is what brings us freedom. That's the gospel at work. And repentance is vital for empowered ministry. See, Jesus identified with the sin of Israel and submitted to a baptism of repentance prior to his anointing and empowering for ministry. It was only as he entered into an identification with our sin and God's forgiveness of that sin that he was anointed and empowered for ministry. And so, as we follow the example of Christ, we too can experience the empowering of the Holy Spirit for the ministry he has called us to. But do you think God would choose to bless our efforts in ministry if we are unrepentant of sin? If we just continue along knowing that we're saved but never repent of our ongoing sin, that is very unhealthy for our relationship with God. And it's quite hypocritical for our ministry to others. If repentance, if coming to God in prayer and repenting of our sin is not a regular part of your life, then can I encourage you to make it something that you do at least daily? Because who here has gone throughout a, 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 a day without sinning? I, I can't raise my hand. Anyone else? Jesus is here. He's the only one, I think. Repenting of sin is one way to apply the gospel to our lives each day. It's to remind us and to admit that we are sinners in need of a saviour and to come before God in repentance, to receive his cleansing of our sin, we can then continue on in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to minister to others with a clear conscience and right relationship with God. And repentance is excellent preparation for ministry. And so today, can I encourage you to respond to the message that God has brought to us today about repentance. It was so important that God sent a prophet to his people to prepare the way 
It was something so important, something he had not done for 460 years. And that message is still a message that we need to hear and respond to today. So what is our response? Well, I'd hope that our response would be to repent today of our sin. Receive God's forgiveness bought by his son and be empowered for your ministry of hope. From chapter 4 of Luke, Jesus begins his ministry. But it only came after he joined God's people in repentance and received the anointing and empowering of the Holy Spirit for his ministry of hope. We too have an anointing on us to be ministers of hope to our community. And so I want us to start the the year off on the right foot, repentant of sin, forgiven and in right relationship with God and empowered by the Spirit for our ministry of hope. And may I encourage you to respond physically today and to stand with me in a prayer of repentance. So if that is something you'd like to do and, and to respond, yes, Jesus, that's me, I want to, re- to repent today, then stand. Let's stand together and repent of our sin. Be grateful of God's forgiveness together. Pray for the Holy Spirit's empowerment for our ministry of hope. The best preparation we can make for the ministry we're called to. So we're going to do that old school type of praying where someone leads in prayer and then everyone responds. We all right with that? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we acknowledge that we are sinners. Lord, we repent of our sins today. Please forgive us our sin. Lord, wash us clean with the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, we ask that you now empower us with your Holy Spirit to complete our calling in ministry to bring the hope of the gospel to the northeast. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who is mighty to save and our source of hope. Amen.